Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. In an effort to alleviate the burden on taxpayers, Hamilton may use reserves to reduce taxes. Where are food prices going? A Hamilton icon is being immortalized at Queen's Park. And I'm also highlighting the Canada-India spat, why the Avro Arrow was mothballed, and the boys are back in town. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We are all staring at a startling... 14.2% proposed at this point tax hike for 2024. That is a large digit. Hamilton's mayor says it's time to, well, do something about it. And that's something, well, we're going to find out next year as we bring in Mayor Andrea Horvath, City of Hamilton, to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Madam Mayor, good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Thanks for joining us. Yes, we can. So 14.2% is not a number that anyone wants to see. How are you and council going to bring that number down? Well, we are going to work uh, very hard. There's just no way that we can see a tax hike of that nature. We are struggling, though, with some realities that uh, that we are hoping other govern- other orders of government will recognize are not um, the responsibility of the city. So, for example, uh, f- almost 4% of that tax hike is the, the changes that the provincial government has made uh, to development charge fees and, and a couple of other pieces. And so... They said that they were going to make us whole. We're waiting. <laughs> they haven't made us whole yet, and we cannot uh, calculate into our budget anything coming from the province because they haven't given us any uh, commitments yet in terms of what that's going to look like. We also know that we are picking up uh, some of the costs uh, that should be covered off by the feds and the province in terms of uh, the costs of uh, housing uh, asylum seekers and uh, and refugees and folks that are coming uh, into the country, which we support people, obviously, but uh, we need the other orders of government to take on their responsibility for helping us uh, to settle those folks and, and get them on a pathway to success here in Hamilton. Uh, there's uh, There are pressures for sure, uh, and we're going to do everything we can because that number is completely unacceptable. Downloading from other levels of government, whether it's federal or provincial government that you just pointed to, it's it's not a new thing. It's happened for several years, but of that 14.2%, do you have a percentage of what downloading is responsible for? Is it 5? Is it 10%? Well, just the housing alone in terms of the uh, development charges is uh, is almost 4. Uh, we've also gone to the the feds for um, to, to help us with some other cost, that would be another one. So all of this is set out in the budget uh, outlook that's coming today. So it's or it's the city of, uh, uh, rather the council's first chance to kind of look at what all the drivers are. Uh, and then we have some hard decisions to make. And we're prepared to, to make uh, hard decisions to get to wrestle that number down. One of those potentially hard decisions is whether or not to dip into reserve funding, which is in place for, well, emergencies. Is that an option? And is that an option that you're willing to go down? Uh, Well, it's certainly something that I asked the staff to put uh, in front of us. Uh, There's no no doubt that the um, financial tools at uh, hand are there for a reason. And we need to look at whether now is the time to leverage some of them. And so, uh, you know, it's always been considered, you know, the rainy day fund. Uh, post-COVID, everything's upside down. Uh, the government, as you've identified, and I agree, continues to put more pressure on municipalities and not, um, you know, not step up, uh, wh- which they should be doing. And so it, it may be time to look at some of those things, like the reserves, uh, et cetera, uh, to see you know, what we can do to cushion the blow. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's not something that can be done 
every year, right? I mean, it's not a sustainable uh, yearly annual um, you know, way to deal with things. And so if, if it's a matter of getting us out of a bind and that that bind is going to be able to be addressed uh, going forward, then it's something that we need to look at. Talking about budget negotiations with Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath as uh, those negotiations and and deliberations will continue. And right now we're staring at a potential 14.2% tax hike and uh, we're all uh, having uh, good thoughts on that being whittled down. Just to maintain existing services, we're looking at a 4.5% tax hike next year. What's in, In a perfect world, what's the number that we're likely going to see come 2024? You know, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to start uh, spitballing numbers. I don't think that that's uh, that's the best way to go. Uh, I think that what we need to do is uh, is always keep in mind the requirement to provide services to Hamiltonians that they uh, that they want and that they need, uh, and also then to be cognizant of the fiscal capacity of the household of the average kind of person who who lives in in Hamilton, and and that's important as well. We have an average household income that's that's lower uh, than uh, many other municipalities, many other communities. And so we always have to factor that in. Uh, people have a, a limit. And in these particular times when everything is so expensive, uh, when people's costs are going up, uh, when we have, uh, you know, everything from food uh, to, uh, to mortgage payments and rent uh, going through the roof, uh, we, we need to keep, to keep, you know, keep that in mind and, and try to keep a balance. It's uh, going to be a lot of uh, tough sledding you know, over the next uh, few weeks, but uh, we wish you and uh, Council best of luck in whittling this number down. Thank you so much, Rick. Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. And yes, right now it is 14.2%. And to maintain existing services is at least 4.5%. Uh, by all accounts, we're going to be paying a little bit more, whether it's inflation or housing and homelessness and some of the projects that this city wants to tackle. This tax hike is going to be a tough pill to swallow in 2024. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're certainly looking for nicer days in our grocery stores going forward because it has been a struggle. As you know, the cost of food has really gone up over the last number of years. And earlier this week, we saw a glimmer of hope because top executives from Canada's major grocery store chains uh, agreed to work with the federal government to stabilize prices. Industry Minister uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne and Finance Minister Christopher Freeland were in that meeting with the executives from Loblaw and Metro, Empire, Walmart, Costco, and that happened back on Monday morning. I am pleased to have seen the constructive tone of the discussion over the course of the two hours. And bottom line is that they have agreed uh, to support uh, the government of Canada in our efforts to stabilize food price in Canada. Okay, so what does that mean? What kind of plan will we see? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the food professor, professor of food distribution and policy and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Dr. Charlebois, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Hey, how are grocers going to achieve this price stabilization? Well, first of all, I was in the room uh, at the meeting, and uh, I agree with the minister that tone was quite constructive. Uh, it wasn't like in March uh, in Parliament, where there was a lot of accusations and figure pointing. We, uh, not, none of that happened. Uh, it was really more about focusing on solutions. Now, I, I will leave the minister to announce uh, what those solutions uh, might be. Uh, but in general, uh, the discussions uh, were very much about uh, short-term and long-term 
measures. Uh, so for the longer term, of course, there were discussions about the code of conduct uh, to discipline the supply chain. Some grocers do take advantage of their power uh influencing manufacturing uh, and in ontario it's one of the man food manufacturing is one of the largest manufacturing sectors uh in the province so it's really key uh, to support manufacturing because if you do support manufacturing it means more products uh, if you have more products in the market it means more competition and more competition leads to lower prices so that's one thing that uh, that we've looked at of course we've looked at some fiscal policies like the snack tax some products because of shrinkflation now uh, some products are actually subject to a sales tax a lot of consumers don't realize it but it it adds to your grocery uh, till your grocery total so those are the kinds of uh, discussions that we actually did have over the long term. Over the short term, of course, we looked at volume discounting. We looked at issues related to promotions, uh, some loss leading, things that we haven't really seen a whole lot in the last couple of years. One thing you mentioned, discipline the supply chain. Does that just mean make it more efficient? No, uh, it, it would be to get rid of bullying. For example, uh, uh, the agri-food sector is unique in that it is probably the only sector in the world where you actually have to pay your customer to do business with them. So let's say you're PepsiCo Canada, you have to pay uh, Loblaws to do business with Loblaws for list to cover listing fees, marketing fees, uh, over and above fees, things like that. And so uh, over the years, whenever Loblaws or Walmart or any grocers wanted to uh, finance a initiatives like building a new distribution center or something like that. It was essentially financed by suppliers, not the company. <laughs> and so, and at the end of the day, there are so few players in Canada. Uh, if you don't do business with Loblaws, you're out of luck. So you, you kind of had to comply. You had to say yes. Now, this code of conduct would allow companies to go to a safe place to settle disputes. In terms of opening up the market, was that at all a conversation point? Because a lot of people, and you mentioned it earlier, the, the competition angle, the more players, the lower the price is going to be, essentially. Uh, was that a conversation item? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, yes, it was. And uh, again, I can't really go into the details of, of the discussion, but uh, I, I must say the one thing that really struck me was that the meeting was chaired by a minister that wasn't from Agriculture Canada. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, uh, Mr. Mr. Champagne's world is our telecoms, not groceries. And so the tone was very different. And I, and I think that the big five, the five leaders in the room uh, were taken aback. I was taken aback for sure because it was all about actions. And, and in, ag, in ag, things are a little bit slower uh, and uh, not as action-oriented and of course the, the the focus is very much on farmers and farm gate the entire time we were in that room the focus was the consumer so it was kind of refreshing to be honest that is interesting the major grocers have been asked to come up with a plan by thanksgiving do you think you being in the room during monday's meeting do you think canadians will be happy with whatever that plan is 
I think so. I mean, first of all, uh, do you, we think that uh, the plan will actually make a difference? When you look at yesterday's data, uh, which came out of, uh, which was released by Statistics Canada, we're, we're actually already going in the right direction. The food inflation rate is down to 6.8%, uh, the lowest rate since February 2022. The gap between general inflation and food inflation is now down to 2.8%. Uh, it's much lower than uh, than in July. So the market itself is taking care of food inflation. So by the holidays, uh, 10 months ago, we released Canada's food price report. And we did predict that by December, we would be down to 5%. And that's exactly what's happening. And we actually are expecting the gap between inflation and food inflation to go down to zero by probably March 2024. So, I mean, the market is actually taking care of this issue. Uh, is it fast enough for Ottawa? Well, I'll leave it to Mr. Champagne to tell you that. Well, we are going to be waiting with bated breath, that is for sure. Dr. Charlebois, I always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the food professor, professor of food distribution and policy, and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. The government has said that if the plan from the big five, again, Loblaw, Metro, Empire, Walmart, Costco, if they bring back a plan that is, quote-unquote, not good enough for Canadians, the government has said tax measures could be brought in. And I'm okay with that as long as those tax measures are not passed on to the consumer, because then we're just... Well, we're back to square one, aren't we? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, he lived by the old adage, life ain't fair, stay in school, get an education. Stay in school because school is a, is a key to success. And it, that's what my mother told me. You're a little black boy, go to school. And I did. I'm still in school. I learn every day. That is the iconic Hamiltonian himself, the late Lincoln Alexander. He's going to be immortalized at Queen's Park for his remarkable contributions. And it happens, this, this announcement happens on a day, 55 years to the day that Link was sworn into office as Canada's first black member of parliament. And 38 years to the day today that he was sworn in as Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. It has all come full circle, and here to describe what is the next step is Rosemary, Rosemary Sadlier, past president of the Ontario Black History Society and chair of the Link Bust Committee. Rosemary, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm just great. Good morning, Hamilton. Mr. Alexander is going to be honored posthumously with, well, I'll let you spill the beans. What is happening? Well, for a number of years, we've been working on a project, an art project, to go in Queen's Park or around Queen's Park. After a series of events over the past at least 10 years, it was finally approved, and we are delighted to announce that we are moving ahead with the creation and installation of a bust of the Honorable Lincoln Macaulay Alexander in Queen's Park, which will be unveiled in January. And this is also another first. He's going to be the first black individual to have a statue at Queen's Park. Absolutely. Um, there are a couple. He will be the first uh, person, first African-Canadian, and he will also be the first lieutenant governor. So I think that this is setting a precedent in a way which we're really delighted about. So why was this important to do? 
I think we often think we know, think we understand, and perhaps even think that everything is okay. But Black representation is so key for our young people. You started with a clip about Link, who we, that's what we affectionately call him, Mm -hmm. um, talking about the importance of education. And part of that education is being able to see yourself reflected so that you can be inspired and encouraged, perhaps to follow in the footsteps of what has inspired you. Young people go into Queen's Park all the time, and they're on parts of tours to learn about our provincial government. And what better way to encourage them to make it real than to see themselves reflected in a, a statue, in a bust of, of an African-Canadian man right there. Well, there's no better individual to, as a young person, come across and see this statue when it does get presented at Queen's Park and and learn about everything that he accomplished. And he did so at a time where it was very difficult to do. It was very difficult to do then, and frankly, it's very difficult to do now. Um, we, we have to be mindful that when one person is able to uh, represent us, there's still so many people who are seeking those opportunities. This is a man who was a veteran, who was a member of Queen's Privy Council, who was the first Black member of Parliament, the first Black Canadian Minister of the Crown as a Minister of Labour, and the first visible minority appointed as Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, and and frankly, the first in the country. He's exceptional, and and I was very fortunate to have known him and know his family. Um, He has made a difference. Absolutely. Rosemary Sadlier is the past president of the Ontario Black History Society, chair of the Link Bust Committee, and telling us about the uh, the, the new creation, the new bust of Lincoln Alexander that is going to be immortalized at Queen's Park, and uh, he'll be uh, honored forevermore. We we know him, we love him, and uh, he has been uh, a trailblazer for many and has uh, always pointed to education as uh, a key cog, as we played in the audio clip, going forward. What do you think people are going to learn when they see his bust going forward? Well, just seeing his bust uh, reinforces the reality that there was a a Black person in that role. But we're also hopeful with the additional donations that we anticipate to come in, in being able to create an opportunity for people to learn about him in other ways. Uh, Certainly, his story will be included as part of the tours that will take place at Queen's Park, but we want to be able to extend that and amplify it even more. Certainly, um, with his first family, um, he was able to achieve so much, and with his second family, with with Marcy uh, Alexander, and my, uh, I hope she gets better soon, just had surgery, Um, We know that his story was amplified even in terms of having a national day created for him, which I helped to support. But unfortunately, even having a national day, a provincial day and a national day has not helped people really fully appreciate and embrace his story. So we have to do more to amplify that. He was a good guy and someone that people liked, and so they should know more about him. Absolutely. And the official public unveiling of the Lincoln Alexander bust is going to be done on Lincoln Alexander Day, January 21st, 2024. We're so very much looking forward to seeing that. And I'm glad we could uh, talk about this today and bring uh, everyone's attention to this uh, important topic.
Thank you for having me. And, and many thanks to my, my committee, to Quentin Versetti, the artist, and to Erica Alexander, who has represented the family so ably. So looking forward to seeing it. Rosemary, thank you very much. Thank you. Rosemary Sandlier is the past president of the Ontario Black History Society, chair of the Link Bust Committee. You can also contribute to this project. You can visit l2l.ca. That's L, the number two L, dot C-A, and contribute to this project. It is amazing and an amazing tribute to an incredible individual. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The fallout continues after Monday's bombshell announcements in the House of Commons by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that there is credible information suggesting India had a role in the death of a Canadian citizen. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh. India has called the allegations absurd and motivated, and this tussle has some dramatic ripple effects. Michael Kugelman is the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., a leading specialist on Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan, and their relations with the United States. Michael, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I read that you think Canada's move was very surprising. Why do you think that? Well, several reasons. One is that um, India has uh, been accused of uh, involvement in assassinations in uh, several countries in its neighborhood, but uh, rarely, if ever, has India been accused of um, being involved in an assassination in the West, and particularly in a a key Western partner like Canada. I was also surprised, given that the allegations were made public, um, typically in these types of cases with very sensitive and even explosive um, allegations, uh, they're carried out... um, discreetly, quietly. So I think it's quite striking that uh, he brought it, that the Prime Minister decided to uh, go public with these allegations. What kind of ripple effect do you think this is having on the geopolitical scene? Well, I think, uh, among other things, it shows that uh, as much as India has worked very hard to strengthen its relations with uh, Canada and many of its Western allies, including uh, the U.S. and uh, the U.K., that um, you know these these relationships are not immune to major crises, uh, and I'd argue that India doesn't have any strained relationships with any Western country except for Canada. Um, I think there's also um, you know some potential implications for uh, broader geopolitical goals that uh, Canada uh, has with uh, India, such as uh, working together to counter the challenge posed by China. If this this if this crisis continues and the relationship is really a mess for a while, that could inhibit inhibit cooperation. But I don't think we should overstate the broader long term geopolitical implications here. I do I do hope that in due course this relationship will manage to stabilize itself. Do you think this development affects Canada's relationship with the US, which is also looking to India to counter what countries like China are doing in that region? Oh, absolutely. Um, and Canada and the U.S. are, of course, uh, close allies. They're a part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, and I think there would be an expectation uh, in Canada that the U.S. would be willing to take a public stand in support and solidarity with Canada. But indeed, as you note, the India, pardon me, the U.S. has a very special relationship with uh, with India, a strategic partnership, as it's often described here in Washington. So the, the U.S. will need to tread a very fine line in seeking to signal to Canada that it, um, you know, is in solidarity with Canada and what it's going through, but at the same time, 
it doesn't want to come down so hard against India that it risks alienating a relationship with New Delhi that's very important to Washington, especially given that the Indian government is especially sensitive to any type of external criticism of its actions or policies. Given that, do you think the United States will play a role in trying to smooth relations between these two countries? I think, yes. I think that through back-channel talks, perhaps some quiet diplomacy, the U.S. could try to get involved. And there could be a useful opportunity this week because the uh, annual U.N. General Assembly meetings are happening in New York. Uh, Of course, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau will be there. The Indian External Affairs Minister is there. And, of course, you'll have senior U.S. officials there, too. So that could provide an opportunity for some sideline talk, so to speak. But, again, the tensions are so high between Canada and India now that it may be too soon to look for those types of off-ramps. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Michael Kugelman, the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., a leading specialist on Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan and their relations with the U.S. And we all saw the at the G20 summit in India that the frosty relationship between Trudeau and India's prime minister. Um, diplomats from both countries have since been dismissed. Where do you think we go from here? Right. And, you know, the fact that you've had these uh, expulsions of diplomats, that was expected. That's typical tit-for-tat type tactics when you have a diplomatic spat like this. I think the question is um, if India responds uh, in other ways, such as, for instance, by choosing to remove security or reduce security at Canadian diplomatic facilities in India, or if India announces it's going to downgrade some elements of the relationship. As you know, uh, today, India's government announced a travel advisory uh, warning um, for Indians in Canada, which could well be seen as a provocation by uh, by the Canadian government. So I think, for me, that's the key signpost. What might India do beyond the typical tit-for-tat type re- reactions when you have these types of diplomatic spats? Would closing an embassy in one of the countries be kind of a last-draw type move? Yeah, absolutely, because that would essentially signal that relations are being suspended or being put on hold, and we're not there yet. Uh, you know, the, of course, there have been some diplomats expelled, but so far as I know, at this point, you know, the embassies are still operational. But that would indeed be the type of escalatory tactic that would signify that this crisis, uh, that this relationship is really in deep crisis with, with no easy way out. I hope it doesn't get to that point. Last one for you. Do you think we're going to get, because there's politicians here in Canada are, th- are saying out loud, hey, can we see the details of this credible information? Do you think that gets out into the public? Yeah, that's that's a that's a key question. Many, especially in India, are asking that question. You know, show me the evidence. Um, and you know, uh, we know that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau met with Prime Minister Modi uh, when Trudeau was there in India for the G20 summit. And uh, I believe that uh, Trudeau shared his concerns with Modi about this assassination. I don't know if that means that information and evidence was shared with with Modi or with other Indian officials as well. So, you know, it could be that uh, Trudeau wanted to bring out the allegations to the public and the world while ensuring that the very sensitive, uh, the most sensitive information was kept uh, behind closed doors, only shared uh, privately. But indeed, now that he's gone public with the allegations, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him, as there should be, to provide uh, the evidence uh, here. It's been a fascinating few days. Looking forward to seeing how it all transpires. Michael, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Michael Kugelman, director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., with some insight into the frosty relationship now between Canada and India. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When I say the Avro Arrow, if you're a certain vintage especially, you will have a distinct memory of this technological advancement that the Canadian military had had at one point in time. And now there's a new research paper that is out that is shedding new light on why Canada decide to scrap 
this aircraft back in 1959. It's called Arrows, Bears, and Secrets, the role of intelligence in decisions on the CF-105 program. And it was published yesterday in the peer-reviewed academic journal Canadian Military History. So why was this project mothballed? Alan Barnes is the paper's author, a senior fellow in the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alan, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm fine. I'm pleased to be here with you. So you obtained classified records through the Access to Information Act. What happened to the Avro Arrow? Well, obviously, it's a very, very complex uh, question with many, many elements. Uh, many of these elements have been discussed by historians over the past decades, but one part of the question that had never really been addressed because of a lack of records was the role of intelligence and how the Canadian intelligence assessments fed into the decision. So that was the focus of my paper, is to look at the influence of intelligence, how it was used, and uh, how it was used in the decision, and then how it was used to sell the decision afterwards. So I wasn't trying to sort of completely relitigate the question of why the Avro was cancelled, but I wanted to bring in the element of intelligence, which is often overlooked, especially because it's so hard to get the records. So what was the intelligence community in this country saying back in the 50s to say, you know what, we really don't need this? Well, they were taking a close look at what was happening in, in the Soviet Union at the time, obviously, and the uh, the bomber threat was serious in the mid-50s, but Canadian intelligence was looking further ahead and assessing that by uh, 1960 or very shortly after that, the threat would shift from bombers to ballistic missiles. And uh, once the Soviets had a sufficient force of ballistic missiles, that was where the main threat was from. And uh, interceptors, even very advanced interceptors like the Arrow, would just not be effective against that kind of threat. Uh, so that's the, the intelligence laid that down, saying this is what we expect in the future. And then essentially it was over to the, the rest of the the chiefs of staff and the Canadian government to decide, you know, is the cost of the arrow worth it, given it's not going to be as useful against the new threat? Did the funding uh, for the Avro Arrow go to this new way of doing things militarily? Well, the problem was, strategically, uh, ballistic missiles are almost impossible to stop. So, in fact, there there is no defense against ballistic missiles, and it's only now, 50, 60 years later, that uh, you know very sophisticated U.S. anti-ballistic missile defenses have been invented. But in the 50s and, and early 60s, there really was no uh, option, no no technical or military solution to dealing with ballistic missiles. So the uh, the senior leadership in in both the United States and Canada decided that if you can't defend against uh, ballistic missiles, and, and you can't, uh, it was, you know, didn't make a lot of sense to spend a lot of money on trying to defend against bombers, which were not the main threat. Uh, Alan Barnes is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Alan is the author of Arrows, Bears, and Secrets, the role of intelligence in decisions on the CF-105 program and the uh, the scrapping of the Avro Arrow back in 1959, also a senior fellow at Carleton University. In its heyday, how good was the Avro Arrow? Uh, that's a very good question, and, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of different answers if you talk to different people. I must say that my expertise is in the intelligence side of things, looking at how intelligence uh, influences policy and supports policy. I'm really not a technical expert, so I can't provide a uh, an informed uh, opinion about that. But I think having worked in the area 
the uh, the aircraft still was very much in a in a prototype uh, stage. There were still many many things that had to happen to before it became a fully successful and fully operational aircraft. And and it's not clear if it ever could have achieved that aim. It's certainly in my view, and I'm sure others will disagree with me. Looking at Canada's military fleet now, uh, from an intelligence standpoint, would the Avro Arrow have a place in 2023? Uh, no. Again, I'm not an expert in that side of things, but there's no indication that that this would somehow be a magical plane that would still be viable today. Right. Do Canadians still have a sore spot over this in this uh, mothballing? I guess back in in the late fifties, it seems like I think so. Uh, clearly, there's been a great deal of interest in the aircraft in the decades uh, since then. It was a very it was a beautiful aircraft, um, but it really has uh, generated a lot of a lot of myths, uh, a lot of misunderstandings. I think, uh, and certainly the intelligence side of that is is a, a prime example mm-hmm. because. Uh, researchers didn't have access to the intelligence material. They really didn't have any idea of what that role was. And so there was a lot of speculation. Some speculated that the Americans were feeding us bad information. Uh, Others felt that uh, the Canadian uh, intelligence uh, authorities were essentially uh, manipulating the information to to support a decision that the government had already made and so on. So these myths were out there. Uh, and yet nobody could really prove things one way or the other because it was at that time impossible to get a hold of the actual uh, intelligence documents. So that really is the main um, change, main main uh, new element that I've added uh, in this discussion is to bring forward the intelligence uh, reports. And uh, Canada had its own independent intelligence capability. So it wasn't just taking American intelligence at, at face value uh, it it was looking at much of the same information and then coming to its own conclusions, which in fact were somewhat different than the American uh, assessment. We only got about a minute. I'm not sure if you uncovered this in your research, but did other countries follow suit in terms of shifting their focus when it came to defense and, and spending lots of money on aircraft? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, there was there's many elements, many reasons why you would spend money on aircraft. There's many different roles they have, but in the in the air defense role, especially the comparable situation is is the United States because both countries, Canada and the United States, were defending North America, and uh, the U.S. made similar decisions in the early '60s to scale back their uh, air defense um, facilities and, and uh, aircraft and so on, and so both Canada and the U.S in the early 60s, basically scaled back uh, their air defense capabilities, uh, interceptor squadrons, and so on, by about half uh, compared with what it was in the mid-50s. It's really interesting stuff, and it was all put together by Alan Barnes from Carleton University. Alan, thanks for the time today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Alan Barnes is a senior fellow in the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and author of Arrows, Bears, and Secrets, The Role of Intelligence in Decisions on the CF-105 program. Interesting stuff. Google it. It's a, it's a pretty good read. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The boys are back in town. Nice back of the net for Tavares. Tavares coming out. Sends it in a goal. They score! They score! Holy mackerel! They score! The Leafs have won it! They're going to the second round! 
Do you believe this? Holy mackinac! A great Joe Bowen on TSN Radio. Yeah, those beautiful Toronto Maple Leafs open training camp today as the club begins what it hopes and what fans hope will be a season that brings an end to what is the NHL's longest Stanley Cup drought. Stephen Ellis is an associate editor and prospect analyst at Daily Faceoff and joins us on GMH. Stephen, welcome back. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, it was a busy offseason for this Maple Leafs team, probably highlighted by a new general manager and a new mega deal for Austin Matthews. Um, coming into this training camp, how do you see this team when you look from top to bottom roster-wise and, and what uh, Brad Living has done? You know, it's definitely a lot of hype for this season. You look, you bring in a new GM and bring in some new key additions in Bertuzzi, Domi, and Klingberg. And then you got one of the best prospects you've had in a long time in Matthew Nyes. You know, there's a lot of excitement for this team. But, you know, every year we're, we're kind of looking at this group and say, is this the year? And, you know, I, I don't know if this is the group that's going to be able to change that, but it's definitely going to put up a good fight. One of the big stories going forward is going to be the contract situation for William Nylander. He's got one year left on his deal, and come the spring, certainly uh, uh, before the trade deadline, if he's not signed and the team is certainly in a playoff position, as many expect, that's going to be a, a prickly pickle. How do you think Treliving handles this? You know, they've got time on their side here, so they don't need to rush to anything. Obviously, I think everybody would want that deal to just get over with because if he goes out and just starts dominating the team and he's the top scorer, then it's going to be really tough to sign him. But at the same time, like if it doesn't work out, if he struggles, if the team doesn't fall through, you can cut ties with them. Yeah, I think the team would love to make a trade to get something out of him, but it's okay. Hey, also to take the full salary cap space and do something else with it if it doesn't work out. But I think Nylander had one of the best contracts in the NHL the last few years. I know a lot of people might not agree, but I think you, you want to bring him back if you can make it work. Speaking of the salary cap, the Maple Leafs are above that number right now. Do they just carry less players to make sure they're under the cap on a game-to-game -game basis, or is a trade in the offing or, or some other move? It'll be interesting to see. I know, you know, we, we got guys like Ryan Reeves, Dylan Gambrell, um, maybe um, a, a defenseman or two that could still go down. You got Martin Jones as a third goalie. So they are carrying extra players, uh, but it'll be kind of interesting because they do have a player, uh, Noah Gregor, who they could likely sign at, at a tryout if he plays well to maybe a league minimum contract. And then that could push a few guys down. I would not honestly be surprised if Matthew Nyes is one of the guys sent down as good as he is because he's got a more expensive contract than someone who would sign at a lowered price on a league minimum deal and then you could go send him down without having to worry about waivers and losing him so it'll be interesting to see how they kind of tackle that and this is why they hold training camp a guy like matthew nice who yes can be sent down and doesn't have to clear waivers um might have a terrific camp which is going to make Living's decision making even that more difficult yeah, like, I mean, you look at Nice, he could be anywhere from the first line to the third line, just looking at the, the depth of the wings this year. But, you know, at the same time, he is just 20 years old. He'll be 21 a month into the season. So he's still young. You don't need to rush him. You want him playing pro hockey as opposed to going to college. But that could be okay if he's playing in the AHL. I think some people might not love that idea. But if it means making sure they're salary compliant for a little bit, that might not be the worst thing. Toronto Maple Leafs opening up training camp today as they get start for the uh, NHL season, which uh, begins next month. Stephen Ellis is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Stephen is with Daily Faceoff and breaking down this Leafs team for us. You mentioned a couple of names that they added in the offseason, a, uh, a little bit of sandpaper, a little more grit to this roster. Max Domi fits that bill, Tyler Bertuzzi as well. What kind of impact do you expect from those two guys? 
I expect this team to be much harder to play against. You got also have Ryan Reeves, a guy I don't expect to play every game, but we know he can he can throw hits, he can drop the gloves. And I think another one, Matthew Knight, honestly a guy that could throw hits. He's 6'3", 209 pounds, and he knows how to use that frame. So this is going to be a more difficult team to play from. Will that translate to on a success? I don't know. You look at some of these teams that have won the Stanley Cup, you know, they've got the skill and, and the size, and I think that the Leafs, have that now. Uh, we just got to see if they could put that together. You mentioned Martin Jones and, and a pickup uh, on the free agent list in in, in net. Uh, rookie Joseph Wall is going to be there. Uh, Elias Samsonov signing a new deal as he went to arbitration. Is it is it Samsonov and Wall, or do you think Jones might get a shot here? I think a lot of people forget that Wall was a starting goalie in Seattle last year and was a big reason why they they did as well as they did in the regular season. But he is statistically one of the worst starting goalies in the last five years in the NHL. That's a really good guy to have on your system, though. He's got all that pro experience. You can throw him in in, in, in short spans if you need him. Ideally, they're able to find a way to keep him on the lineup and have him as that third goalie because if one of those two other goalies that did get hurt last year get hurt again, they don't really have a guy that could fill that role, and Martin Jones could be that person. So I, I would love to see him there, but I, I think they're going to give the opportunities to Wool and Samsonov, and I honestly wouldn't be surprised if Wool is the starting goalie come April. The goal of this team last year was to finally get past the first round. They did that beating Tampa Bay in what was a very entertaining series, but ultimately lost to uh, the Stanley Cup finalist Florida Panthers. What is this team's goal this year? Is it Stanley Cup or bust? Yeah, you got to hope so. You know, this is something where it is a new GM. I think you've got to give them a bit of a little leniency here. You do have Austin Matthews now signed for a few years, so it's not like that's the huge pressure here. Um, but you, they they can't just win one round again. They got to start continuing to improve. Um, and you got to lose a, a few times to know what it takes to win. And I think the Leafs are going to eventually get to that point. I, again, I'm not convinced this is the year, but they got to start pushing forward here. Well, there's been 50-plus years of lots of losing. <laughs> Let's see if they can get it done here in the 2023-24 season. Stephen, always appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Stephen Ellis, Associate Editor and Prospect Analyst at Daily Faceoff. You can check out all his articles and a whole lot more on their website. Uh, Leafs, can they end their Stanley Cup drought? It is, well, it's, it's a long time. Fifty. It'll be 57 years next year. That is crazy long crazy long. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.